I'm Nate DeMeo, and I am the creator uh, and uh, producer in pretty much everything um, with, uh, for the Memory Palace, which is a podcast I've been doing since 2008, since the end of 2008. And I was the artist in residence at the Met uh, a few years ago, 2016, I think. So I wanted to ask you about the Memory Palace at the Met project or so. How, um, how did it come about? And um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about how it came about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got um, essentially a cold email, um, which was kind of a dream email. Um, from the woman who is in who is the head of the arts and lectures department, or some similarly named department. Um, her name was Lamore uh, Tomer, and she uh, had just kind of reached out and asked if, if um, I would be interested in, in doing something with the Met. And she uh, knew about me um, in part because she's just a podcast listener, but also because she had worked in radio herself. I think she had spent some time in kind of music programming in the New York public radio world. So it was, was kind of um, uh, kind of like het to stuff that was happening in um, you know, the audio field. Um, so, you know, she found my work and liked it. But the, the first thing that they called me in to do was a straight work for hire. So the Met was installing its first period room um, since I think the late 1970s um, in the American wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They they have this really kind of uh, kind of lovely and really kind of charming thing. If you're ever just wandering around, you'll stumble in the like the bottom floor. They have this run of these you know rooms from you know different American mansions and and Shaker meeting houses and stuff like that um uh you know through the ages and they so they had just acquired um a period room um which was a uh a woman's dressing room Ar arabella huntington's dressing room um who was a prominent socialite uh in during the gilded age and uh, then moved out west and became one of the founders of what became the huntington museums museum and gardens and so um the met you know, had uh, money to install it, but they also had money to launch an exhibition around it. And included in that exhibition money um, was performance money. And so um, they were going to do sort of a small concert and using like, you know, a period piano um, during the opening. But there was essentially like an extra few thousand dollars or something, five grand or three grand or something. And she had the idea of of hiring me to create a site-specific memory palace, um, you know, as part of this event um, that, uh, yeah. And what I didn't realize at the time was it was a little bit of a kind of, she was playing the long game in that she wanted me to be the artist in residence, um, but she was afraid there would be uh, reluctance from the people, you know, on the, whether it's on the board or whomever makes the decisions about the residencies, because, uh, you know, the residency program was maybe four or five years and therefore four or five residents deep. And each of them um, was kind of pulled from, you know, the traditional performing arts. So, uh, you know, there were, you know, some fairly bold faced names in the, um, you know, in dance and drama and music. Like, I think the guy, the guy immediately preceded me was the jazz trombonist VJ Iyer, who's, who's, you know, as, as big, I suppose, as a jazz trombonist can be, which is not particularly big, but big in the jazz trombone world. And um, so she was, she was, you know, she wanted 
me to kind of come in and demonstrate um, what I could do, um, but basically that it would pass muster as art. And um, so that was the that was the thing. So she she called me and asked me if I, if I wanted to do it. I told her the truth, which is that um, I had always wanted to do some kind of creative audio tour work. And so it was super it was a super exciting thing. And that was the first thing. So that um, piece uh, kind of preceded the residency by six months or something like that. Uh, OK, so that was like an audition. Basically. Yeah, I think it was, you know, and she told me pretty early on that that was that was kind of her plan that like if this went well, she thinks she would be able to convince them to let me be um, the artist in residence. And, well, and uh, you, yeah. no, and you, you said they were four to five residents deep already, but you were able to get up, get there within six months. I mean, that's pretty good yeah or I, I don't know or is the residency only like i mean your residency was a year yeah no the residencies are a year so sure. I, I meant that you know there were right. there probably been oh. you know over the course of the four or five years preceding there had been four or five uh there had been you know, oh, four separate okay. residents okay yes and so okay. i i think that you know i think that that might have i might have done the work you know at the end of at the beginning of 2015 or something like that i don't you can very easily look up when it was originally when that piece was posted um, but it was, uh, the process was, it was a really cool process in that, um, not only was it, did I get to kind of like, you know, go through the kind of back rooms of the Met and like literally go through like, you know, a false door to get into this room that was being installed and just kind of be there, you know, alone, um, when, you know, as people were walking, you know, uh, on the other side of drywall, not realizing what was inside. Um, I also, uh, you know, had kind of access to the woman who was the curator of that particular exhibit and um she was kind of over the moon frankly that that um there was the possibility that someone would be coming in to do something that might bring extra attention to you know that room and into her work um and you know one thing that i discovered early on that that uh was very very consistent throughout my experience is that um, you know for the curators that you know for the curators that were essentially willing to uh, kind of work with me or the ones that were kind of you know volunteered to me um, like all of them not just sort of couldn't be nicer yada yada um, the, I just noticed very early on that that you know you have these people who are deeply expert in highly highly specific things. And probably go through their life without most people they meet giving a shit, <laughs> you know. Um, like they might say, "Oh, cool, you work at the Met," but like if you say, "What do you do?" They say, "Well, I, you know, I am really, really into bronze friezes, uh, you know, from 1870 to 1883." Um, it, that's when you start to lose people. And to have someone come in and be like, "Well, tell me about these bronze friezes," uh, was very exciting for them. And as you know, me trying to like, you know, get the work done and me trying to like learn what I needed to learn and and ask questions and in some ways be kind of like guided by the passion of other other people to find my own, um, you know, that with that first uh, story, um, that pattern kind of got established. And it was like the it was uh, one of the highlights of the experience, um, but also the thing that really kind of made it tick was getting to really kind of like spend time and kind of like interrogate um curators um and kind of dig into uh 
why they were into certain things and kind of like ask them uh, like what's the story about this set of paintings that you know that other people don't know um, that you think is super cool and uh, uh, that kind of became uh, the methodology uh, for me kind of finding stories within the Met often was I would kind of wander around and 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 be struck by something and it might you know, create a set of questions or create a set of ideas and kind of like artistic ideas with me. But then I would go turn to one of the curators and I would say, do I have this right? And uh, or other times I would just say, um, I don't understand anything about, um, you know, uh, about uh, glass blowing um, and why any of these things are particularly beautiful. Can you explain to me why it's beautiful? And then, um, you know, within that conversation, um, really kind of get turned on to whether it was a story that someone had in their in their back pocket, they've just been you know waiting for an opportunity you know to tell, or um, or whether uh, I guess you could say, or or I don't know. It was um, yeah, th like that that um, that thing that doing that initial room, besides you know uh, being the thing that allowed me to kind of clear the bar that allowed me to kind of land the gig. Um, was also the thing that kind of like, uh, you know, established the, the, the workflow and established the, the, the kind of pattern for um, how things would work once it became the artist residence. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so you basically told me how you got inspired to tell stories. Um, how in, in your um, process or, or in your editorial workings or so, how do you decide which stories about an object are more relevant or interesting or so because I mean there there are multitudes multitudes of stories and as you said like somebody starts talking about bronze freezes and everybody glazes over um how do you decide which stories are relevant well there, the, um there's sort of a couple things one was um one well, let's see I guess one is that that um part of the reason why um I was kind of accepted within this within the institution and so this is probably going to cover a couple of your other questions um was that um the american wing in particular saw this as an opportunity both to like you know hopefully get people to go to you know check out the museum you know uh, in a little bit more depth or bring in you know different audiences or or give existing audiences new experiences of, of the work or whatever but the other thing is that um institutionally they saw this as, uh, to, to a certain degree, as like a way that they could um, tell different kinds of stories um, about the work that they were that they themselves were eager to tell. And those are those stories are kind of like institutional stories. So um, the Met, you know, uh, having been around since the 19th century, um, having had its collection amassed you know, uh, during the you know, 19th century and into the and into the 20th, but having it really kind of like fall into and, you know, set the patterns of, you know, the kind of white Western canon. Um, the American wing has been, you know, doing what it can, like through acquisitions and the ways it might apportion wall space for the different artworks you know, to, uh, you know, diversify the story it's telling about America, uh, both in terms of, um, you know, by, you know, acquiring or featuring, you know, artists of color or by, um, you know, trying to shake up 
um, within its, you know, within its abilities, like the 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 canon of what you know uh, gets uh, gets most acclaim um, in the world of American art. And so, when you know, as curators, it's difficult thing for them to do because some of it is they're they're limited by uh, the amount of money that they can spend. Um, they're limited by the fact that other institutions are frankly on, on a similar mission, and so. When, for instance, a, you know, a key work by a 19th century African-American artist uh, comes up now, there's, there's, there's uh, increased competition between large institutions to acquire that piece. And then the other thing is it's also the Met. So when you go into a certain room, you expect to see Washington crossing the Delaware and you expect to see, you know, certain 19th century um, landscape, you know, painters. And so, you know, there's only so much that they can actually do to change um, they're fairly staid and hidebound, uh, you know, collection. Um, and so they try to do things, you know, through subtle shifts of placement on the walls. They try to do things, you know, by changing the, the text that, you know, can fit on a little placard. Um, but, you know, I think to the head of the American wing and to some of the curators, um, here was an opportunity to bring someone in and steer me in directions that will help them tell some of those stories that you might not ever be able to to learn or notice um, if you are just cruising through the gallery. Um, and so they were really excited about it and they're really excited to help me out. Um, but then um, for me personally, um, the best kind of opportunity and best kind of piece of advice and, and best like thing that was said to me during this whole experience was very early on, Lamore, the woman that brought me in to do it, um, said very, very specifically that I that this was not a work for hire, even though I was being paid like that. I was the artist in residence and, you know, she thinks of me as an artist. I think of myself as an artist and she was going, it would, part of her job was to make sure that everyone in the building knew that that was the case. And so, um, I was ultimately going to be the person making the decisions about what stories there were. Um, I was, you know, going to be, uh, you know, that, you know, I, I was going to have my own agenda if I, you know, decided to tell um, a, a counter story that was just going to be the way it was. Um, so as a result, like I did, you know, because I, I very much felt the, the agenda of the museum a lot. Like I, I you know, I, I knew what game they were playing and, and for the most part, it was totally fine because like the truth of the matter is, um, you know, I felt myself very much kind of admiring and aligned with uh, their mission for the most part. Um, but that said, um, I also um, stated early on that I was going to approach the museum the same way that I approach um, the memory palace in general, that, I, that you know, this, that my show is very epiphany driven. It is very, you know, much kind of like led by my own personal interests and my own, you know, weird foibles and my own strange kind of tastes and take on the world. And that my residency would be you know, successful if I kind of followed that pattern um, and followed that same thinking um, as I approached the artwork. And so, you know, asked what is the, um, you know, how do I come up with stories or how did I come up with that set of stories for the Met? Um, the truth is I just walked around the museum and, uh, and when I would be struck by an artwork or struck by, you know, a strange juxtaposition in the way that, the, the, that you know, basically I just walk around and think um, and I spent many, 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 many days just kind of, you know, prowling through the galleries and 
trying to kind of like with a little bit of an agenda of thinking that there that there are certain types of stories that I wanted to tell about the way that museums create history um, and certain kind of uh, artistic challenges about doing certain types of site specific work or doing work that would hold up even if you weren't in the gallery. Um, but for but for the most part, it was literally just me walking around, being struck by something, either knowing, yes, this here is a story, or being like, huh, I wonder about that. Um, who can I talk to that that knows about this thing? And then, or um, or some or like have lunch with, you know, the head of ceramics and have, you know, her uh, explain ceramics to me, or have, you know, someone explain to me um, you know, a, a recent painting that they'd acquired, um, why, you know, why this painting, why, you know, why this placement and, and walk me through it. Hmm. And that, that sort of covers the question about um, your working relationship with the museum. Sure. And, and so I was wondering. I do, I do, if have, there, I do, I do have a couple yeah. more, like, I do have a couple sure. of important thoughts go, on, on that. Oh, go for it. Go for fact. it. Go yeah. for it. And go so, for it. so, you know, I would, you know, I, one thing I didn't realize, and this was a, this was you know the tiniest bit of a bait and switch, was that um, I really was uh, supposed to be doing this with the American Wing, and um, you know originally it's the artists and residents of the Met, and many other artists and residents at the Met have been walking around and being like, aha, Greece, and then you know setting up the trombone concert based on a Greek sculpture, but it was pretty clear that because I had established this relationship with the American wing and because the American wing, you know, was, you know, had a new director and was really on a mission and was getting in good with the, with the, you know, administrator uh, who I, who had brought me in. Um, it was very clear that like, it would really help her out, help everybody out. If I made some really, if I made some great American wing stories. And there were even times where there were two or three times early on where I was like, ah, I love this painting so much. I find there's a story here that I find so fascinating. I would love to do it. And um, I, we would kind of like talk to the European wing and I would get the sense that the European wing was going to put a bunch of roadblocks in the way because the curators, um, you know, are like to be in control of, of, you know, the way that the stories of the artwork are, are told, like that's, that's their whole deal. And, you know, if you think about a placard by a painting and it's got 400 words max or something like that, and, and that 400 words is often their time to shine <laughs> and to have someone come in and offer an alternate theory of this painting or an alternate story, um, you know, is, you know, just like it ultimately wasn't what, um, the American wing was down down for that, and the European wing in particular was not. And then um, I also very specifically you know wanted to do and ultimately did um, a story about the Temple of Dender um, for the Met and uh, was very excited to do it, and it was one that that I had a real kind of clear vision for. And it also felt like something that one should just do as as like a, such a prominent, a place of the Met and something that people have so much, um, people have uh, so much uh, personal uh, memories around and, and identification with. But it, it was made very clear that this should kind of be done on the down low. That uh, that the people in the Egyptian wing 
would, uh, you know, put, you know, if they, if they got their hands on it, next thing I know, uh, next thing they know, um, I would, you know, have to be cramming in certain information about the Middle Kingdom and the story would fall apart. And further, I wanted to simply call the uh, story the Temple of Dender, um, but I was I was told I could not call it the Temple of Dender, because every official mention of Temple of Dender has to be phrased the Temple of Dender in the Sackler Wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and uh, uh, you know uh, you know like the Sackler Sacklers are great. Not only does that not not roll off the tongue, the Sacklers are like great American villains and all this stuff. I, like, it was just ridiculous. And so, um, yeah, there were definitely times that, like, there were times in which um, you, you, that, especially in the non, in, outside of the American wing, where I kind of demonstrated early on that people could trust me. Um, when I did raise, hey, I want to talk about this thing, people were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's make sure you get this correct. And um, I just didn't want to be handcuffed in that way. No, that, that's interesting because when I heard the Temple of Dender story, I heard your story and then I went on um, to the Mets page to listen to their version of it and it sounded like it was a, a donor reading a card or something about yeah. the information about the temple with some really cool background music that they, yeah. you know, might, that may have um, been cool to somebody or, or something. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, and so I wondered, I, I mean, I... I I was, I am impressed. I mean, it was, it was really a good story and it was, it was, it, it sort of had to do with the temple and it sort of didn't. And as a, as a radio person who has to cut a lot of information to fit into one minute time frame, sometimes sure. I mean, you can't, you can't say the temple of Dender in the Sackler gallery. <laughs> exactly. Anyway. Okay. Moving, moving along. Um, so I I was just curious in in all of your um in your uh, okay actually Memory Palace at the Met there were supposed to be ten stories yes and in the end there were only eight so I guess what ha what happened there it was mostly just it was mostly just that they were difficult to do like that it, that it was just hard to get the ten done within within the like we were always kind of in a little bit of negotiation about when the things should come out and. Um, uh, it was sometimes difficult to make the deadlines, but what really ended up happening was, and it's boring, but essentially there was at some point, like I was kind of told that like, oh, you have until say it was August and it was, and it was May to, to finish these other things. But then in the middle of it, it was like, oh shoot, you know what? We realized that actually the funder on this, you know, needs, you know, everything needs to be turned in by june 11th or something like that and and at that point it was sort of an impossibility so it was really just it was almost a little bit of an administrative screw up mixed in with um you know just that art is sometimes hard and you say you want to do 10 and and next thing you know you're you're uh, struggling a little bit but it was just kind of a uh administrative thing ultimately uh okay okay yeah no i just i just wondered if there was um now it's kind of a, a now it's like a funding timeline and and me being a little slow situation Okay. Well, so in, in terms of your um, memory palace at the Met, um, your resonance here, so which stories do you feel were the most successful or so? And I guess that kind of, that kind of goes also into um, perhaps reception, like how did people receive the stories? 
I, I guess the, so the first thing would be, yeah, which was most successful? I mean, it, you can use whatever sort of criteria you want to use sure. to determine that. Um, it's a little, it's, you know, it's, um, it's hard to know because the truth of the matter is like uh, successful, like, like I do think that like, I think that um, I haven't looked at it, but I have no doubt that the Temple of Dender one is the, is the most listened to. And I'm sure a lot of that just has to do with the fact that it's the Temple of Dender. Um, I do think it's one of the stronger pieces, um, um, but I also think that part of its strength is that it speaks to it speaks to a specific place that people that that so many like if you've been to the Met once you've been there, and so some of it is just that that like that people you know might want to listen to it because you know it evokes something important to them. But I also think that. Um, it speaks directly to the, you know, the, the kind of strange magic of museum going. And um, that was the thing that I wanted to, to capture. Um, well, and I, I would, I, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I, I just, I would say that it also sort of deals um, with a period of history that people who are alive still live through. Yeah. And they know, and they, and they, you know, everybody knows who Jackie Kennedy is. And so you, you, you know, you mentioned Jackie Kennedy and you get the baby boomers yeah, sure. eating, out, <laughs> eating out of your hand or so. Yeah, it's also, I also um, think, that, yes, yeah. it also has the, it has the benefit to, um, I think, of making an Egyptian story um, a New York story because the Temple of Dinder is like, it's a, it's a New York place, no matter what, like it, it can never be an Egyptian place. It's a New York place. And there's something about it being like, you know, Jackie O, you know, Upper East Side Denizen, um, you know, there's something about it that that uh, helps kind of make that kind of like deeper connection and make and make you feel kind of a part of the history of the place. So I think I think that's I think that's one of the stronger ones. Um, I found um, I really set out to do something similar to the one that is a scavenger hunt um, because I've I've always been kind of fascinated by the kind of uh, abundance and the strangeness of that visual storage area that they have which is rows upon rows upon rows of you know of of there'll be like just a, two rows of of like um you know of various essentially fancy tchotchkes that are that have been franklin's face on them you know and there'll be rows upon rows upon rows of chairs that all kind of look the same or you know portraits of 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 you know congress people that whose names no one remembers now and there's just something about the kind of like basement of you know sifting through the basement of of america um that i wanted to try to tackle and i think the kind of coming up with kind of like scavenger hunt and asking people to kind of like move through it and and engage with some of the beauty and, and absurdity of, of the place um i think was effective um and then uh they're just like they're they're i think the ones that i kind of i think that like um the one that takes the one that is set and is in the um the strange you know kind of circular panorama of um of versailles uh, john vanderlyn yeah i think that's just i think that's i love just that kind of, one it's kind of a ripping yarn i think that one just kind of works really well and it's kind of leisurely because it can be because you know, it's okay to be in there for a long time because it's a kind of isolated, you know, spot. Um, but, but when I, yeah, so I think when I think about 
I think the things that I like, you know, kind of like the most are ones that, you know, are kind of speak to speak to the the kind of speak to the museum itself. Like, um, like I, I think in some ways, um, you know, I was pleased to start off the whole thing with the one about the bottles because I, uh, because I, I just there's something about I wanted because ultimately to me if in the aggregate I was going to be saying anything uh, uh, specifically, it was, I just, it's about kind of exploring the Met's power, you know, to turn everything into something worthy of the Met. Like you put something in the Met and therefore it's worthy of the Met. And, um, you know, really kind of thinking about the kind of the power of curation and the, uh, the, the kind of challenges of that kind of institutional power and so I think that the ones that kind of jump out, um, you know, to me are ones that kind of make the or point out the the magic of the museum itself and and of museums. Um, and so even though I, I I think I like them all, um, but even though, you know, there are some stories about um, you know, individual artworks or the, the stories kind of behind their production or something like that, which I think are cool and I think you know, kind of work well enough, you know, standing in front of them. Um, and I feel like are successful as, as memory palace stories, the ones that, um, those, those three, I think change your relationship with the museum. Um, and, the, and those are the ones that make me excited. The, 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 the one I did about the ballroom and the ballroom floor is, is also, also does that. And I think there's a lot of, and, uh, um just like it is to me to me is like a very pure distillation of of the things that interest me about uh, uh museums and about history um and um that one in particular gets that i think is actually the one that gets cited the most as people's favorite like like if every once in a while i get an email or i'll see a tweet or something on social media and it will be something like, I can't, I'm finally going to New York. I can't wait to go to the Met and listen to those things. I am, can't wait to dance in that weird ballroom. And that makes me happy. <laughs> that's, that's great. I've actually been to Gatsby's Tavern in Alexandria. Oh, yeah. And and I, I do remember this kind of weird balcony thing. Sure. And, and the, you know, you look at it and you have questions about how does the, the orchestra get up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or so, but they're they're obviously with some sort of ladder. But I I don't I I think the one that's there now might be a replica of the one that's in. The, I didn't realize yes, they had taken it, it and put replica. it in the Met. Yes. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's that's very what is it meta? Yep, it is. So, um, okay, so I'm not going to ask you what you liked or disliked about your memory Palestine sure. because it's a little bit straightforward. But um, would you would you do something like this again? Totally. I mean, I, um, I'll like, I'll just say straight up. And I think this kind of begins to touch on some other questions is that I was actually, I was pretty sure that this would open up the door for more museum work. Um, I really like it just, it like, I, a, like I felt like I did a good job and I think the things are pretty cool. And I think that, um, you know, my show has a decent, you know, has a pretty good audience and a decent, you know, kind of stature and reputation. And from what I understand, um, within the kind of like, uh, within the, um, you know, museum community and the curatorial community, I think 
it had like a, a kind of a moment as like a kind of cause celeb where people are like, oh, that was really cool. What a neat idea. And I really thought that um, it would open up the door and, and very, like the people at the Met were like, you know, oh, you know, maybe someday we'll have, have you do something again, but we bet we won't be able to, you know, we bet we'll have to get in line at that point. Um, and essentially not a single, not a single other institution has reached out. Right. But as you said, I mean, the, this is, this is something that I've sort of felt because I came, I, I'm coming into the museum world from the outside sure. as it were, uh, as a journalist. And I, um, I'm sensing that there's a lot of protectiveness. Yep. Um, and, and, and you had mentioned that about the curators wanting to sort of hold on to their knowledge or so as, as it were, because they want to be the authority. So I imagine that's hard if you're coming in and you're, um, you're telling different stories. Yeah. I think, I think, so. I think there's two, I think there's two reasons. One is I think it's, you know, precisely that, that there's, um, that that's their jobs, you know, and, and no matter, you know, there's a, a level of, there's almost no way to, you know, to, like, like you experienced it, like given, given the opportunity to listen to, you know, one of the memory palace stories about the artwork or listen to, you know, type in number 235 and listen, you know, on the app, um, you're going to choose one over the other. Um, and you can choose the one that's more entertaining or, or, or is just more substantive or whatever it is. And, um, and so, you know, I think that, that, yeah, there's, there's, it's, it is a little bit, um, threatening, um, you know, from like potentially an ego way, but also there's something, you know, potentially a little bit destabilizing too. Like, you know, that I have a lot of respect for both the work of, of the curators, but also the, for like the challenges they face. It's like, you know, there isn't anyone um, that is working in the American way at the, the, at the Met right now, at least that I met, um, who, you know, isn't like, oh God, I can't believe we have this crazy, um, old, weird kind of racist uh, depiction of Native Americans, you know, over here. But it is important for art history. And it's, but the other thing is it's been here for 160 years and it anchors this room. And, you know, and they, and they, they don't have like, all of the opportunity in the world to recontextualize it or to bring in other pieces in conversation. And when they walk you through, like, well, we, want, we put this thing here because we thought that by juxtaposing this piece with this piece, you'll get this sense. Like there's, there's almost no amount of reconfiguring um, that they, that they can do um, to actually get what they're, what they're trying to get across. And so I think that, you know, some of it is like, I, I w it's I was surprised that more people didn't frankly want to seize the opportunity because with audio there's such a great opportunity frankly to be able to um, uh, get different voices in there um, even the curator's voices but but you know I, it's it's especially in this day where 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 you could you know everything's digital it just strikes me that every museum ought to have seven different feeds you know on on any given museum tour. Besides, not just different languages, but um, can have multiple versions of the history. Can have, you know, things that are more storytelling, you know, focused, or things that are more technique and craft focused. There's, you know, I, you know, if you just went to, you know, merely stand in front of um, Washington Crossing the Delaware, there's just no reason you can't have like that. You can't be able to scroll through, 
you know, and, and access, you know, a version that is the American historian's version of that scene, that is the art history 101 version of that scene, that is the biography of the painter version of that scene, that is the let's actually explain why this why this piece is actually good. Um, and, you know, you know, talk about technique and framing and all of those issues. Um, right. Good, good, good or relevant. I mean, I, I was going to say, I was thinking that the John Vanderland um, piece that you did, the reason I really liked it is because you, you presented the painter as a human being yeah. who, who tried really hard to do something amazing and he never quite made it. Yeah. And, um, and so the, that gives the the painting a kind of a, a poignancy that that you wouldn't get just by looking at it unless you knew the backstory about it. Yeah, and so I, I don't think, know. And, and the other, you know, and when you hear when you sit down with curators and they walk you through their favorite paintings, like they love them, you know, like they they are so exuberant and so engaged with those stories and so you know fired up by them and you know and happy to reconnect with the thing that originally brought them to their specialty 15, 20, 30 years ago, et cetera. And um, even, you know, not even bringing outsiders, but even giving curators more latitude or more, or, you know, and this kind of skills training to tell the stories they love and, and, and the things they find fascinating, um, giving them more opportunity, you know, is just seems so such a natural thing. But that said, the other thing is I once went on, some someone's podcast that was about um, museum curation. It was essentially like kind of a museum studies podcast and, you know, talking about my experience at the Met. And um, it was interesting. I, li I listened afterwards because I kind of made this pitch at the end where I said, you know, I said, I would just love to do this more. And so if you're listening to this thing, like I'm around. And uh, when I listened back to the episode, they had kind of framed it, you know, with, a, a, you know, it's two hosts and they, chat about things in the museum business and then they went to some went to their interview with me and then they kind of went on the other side and both of them uh, immediately said yeah of course we'd like to hire Nate DeMeo to do this but like no one has any money at all and I think that that's true and no matter no matter how good of an idea it is um you know to to uh bring in additional audio co content I think over and over and over again it is going to come down to money Right. But it's also, I, I think it's money and vision or so. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, no, first of all, I, as a, as a journalist, I, I, I work for the U S government right now. I make a lot of money, so it's not, um, it's not a, a good thing to go into the museum world because I would be, <laughs> sure. I, I would be taking a huge bank out. Um, but, but, but I, and I see that museums don't have money, but I, I think it's, it's vision. I mean, it's it's the vision of the Met, for example, to to be able to see their way to give you the residency, even though you're not a traditional performing artist or so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's that's interesting. Yeah, I think so, I think so, too. I mean, the other thing is that um, there's also real there's a real monopoly monopoly in in uh, museum audio. You know, there's one or two uh, companies, one based in the United States, one based in England that works a lot in the United States. And they just do them all. And if you are, you know, telling your board of directors that, you know, you're, you want, I don't, I have no idea how it is. Let's say it's $30,000 um, to develop, you know, or refresh the audio tour or finally get around to bringing an audio tour to your museum. 
um, they appreciate that you're going with the, the main contractor and the, and you know what those wands will look like and you know you you know what you're in for and so it you know i would say years ago part of the plan for me part of what i wanted to do when i started doing the memory palace was to start a museum audio company specifically um and no matter how many times i've like brought it up with um people who you know are you know, uh, who do good work in audio, et cetera. And we've kicked around the idea or it's come up again. It's like the main takeaway when you actually talk to um, uh, people in museums that are making the decision is like, yeah, you just go with one of those two companies. And that's just, and, and there's not really a way to break the monopoly. And there's not a particular way to, um, you know, become a bespoke uh, producer within within their kind of machine. Because the truth of the matter is, you know, uh, it works like that, you know, they, they've got a price point that works and, and um, people, people clearly enjoy them. No, but they don't enjoy them. <laughs> no, no, they just definitely enjoy them more. I mean, but, you, yes, you know, I mean, you're definitely preaching to the choir, but that's it. like, because like good audio, the truth of the matter is, if you were, um, you know, if you have a local museum and you, you know, go now and then, if like, like I love the Met, and I and I I love you know uh, museums here in LA. Um, and if I knew that there were five different experiences that I could have, that I could spend you know one day, you know like you know hearing um, uh, stories from from X X, X uh, perspective or Y perspective, and then I can come back again and hear them from another perspective, um, I would be so excited. You know, like right now I have the you know, first time ever been like learning to paint. And if I could knew that I could go to, you know, LACMA here in LA and listen to and walk among paintings and listen to, you know, uh, you know a painter or a curator, you know, break down, um, you know, why this painting works so well, I, oh my God, I'd eat that up. And I would go over and over and over again. Um, and I think that that is one of the other, you know, even just from pure business perspective, I think that um, really engaging audio, um, not just like, it doesn't just enrich a person's, you know, uh, visit to the museum. I think that it, it can kind of create a recurring audience if you do it well. Right. I mean, so there, there are no, there are no, I'm trying to think, because I, I'm, I actually grew up in San Bernardino, California, so I kind of know L.A., and we have friends there. I, I, I mean, are there not museums? I mean, you could do something small. Start off at a small museum. Well, it's you know, I mean, the, I mean, the other thing and is then, also, yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, I, I, but do, I, I, yeah. I think I think that that um, I think that if like there was someone who was essentially, you know, trying to pull off the trick, I think that that would actually be the way that would kind of be the way to do it is to kind of go in and. Say so what, like, literally, because the truth of the matter is, I think that there, that there probably, that there probably would be, you know, grant money for such things, you know, and so to go in um, to a museum that does not have uh, an audio component or doesn't have a robust audio component, and essentially just do, I'm going to do two or three of these things and knock your socks off, and then let's apply for, uh, you know, a grant for next year. That seems like a feasible thing. It's a little bit. It is. It is. Uh, it is slightly, uh, slightly more challenging um, for me, just for like you know the vicissitudes of, of my job and stuff like that these days. 
Right, right. And it, it's it's not but but I mean I I feel like the the old standard that that's the thing that I'm finding in the museum world. I mean it, the the there there's a lot of um whatever the word is hideboundedness or yeah. so or I mean it it's a lot of of this is the way we've always done it and these are the people that we used to do it and this is this is how it's going to be done. Totally. And it's I, a, it's a, it's a, it's you know it is a legitimately dusty world and um you know, and it's a little bit like academia in that um, there are also some super exciting, like young art loving people who are getting into the field. Um, but then they, you know, enter the institution and, you know, they'll they'll find that there is the person who is in charge of, you know, Renaissance art that has been there since 1985 and has finally gotten the the, you know the chair that essentially you know in control of the the chair chairpersonship of the department and are going to hold on to it until uh, someone drags them out of there <laughs> and then just the way it goes. right yeah. right 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 okay so so last question on my list so any anything else that you wanted to say um i don't i'll, I'll I don't, let you give you the last word at, i yeah. don't think so i think i think we've covered it i think that that yeah, I think we've covered it. You know, it it's like, you know, I think that that um that hidebounness in that um I think that that you know all of these places, no matter kind of how small or no matter how large or or progressive or whatever, um, there are so many um there are just so many people that have to be pleased and, and checked in with that, you know. Like next time you are in, in a gallery, uh, you know, at a museum, and you are looking around at art, or you're looking around at historical objects, or whatever, um, you know, not only is there a curator who, you know, is kind of in charge of that wing, there are subspecialists who are in charge of portions of that room, and beyond that, there's also there's also a way that that room has been set up, and there are people who 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 are members of the museum who like visiting the it in that way and like the way that it's set up and don't like to be disturbed and will let you know it when things get shaken up. And then beyond that, there are um, often like restrictions upon the collection based upon who donated it. And so, um, you know, in the Met, there are pieces of art or there are um, a whole lot of like silver collections that were donated at a time when like and accepted at a time when people really, really into looking at silver. And but they were but the bequeathment was written, you know, by a lawyer who ensured that, like, this can never not be in this room. And, you know, no matter that the world might have moved on and you have the opportunity to put, you know, something in that's more relevant to audiences or more exciting or, or will build foot traffic in this thing. You may you may literally be legally bound to uh, keep things a certain way. And I mean, honestly, that's why the, the truth is that's why, uh, you know, audio can be such a important tool because it just allows you to, to, you know, step into that space and, you know, and, you know, create an entirely different narrative that, that otherwise you just might be, your hands might be tied um, uh, by any, by tradition, by um, any number of things um, that aren't just letting you just kind of come out and tell the story. You know, there's nothing like walking through a gallery with someone who 
you know, is thinking about the five-year plan of the museum, but it is, but they're thinking about a battleship um, and they're thinking about how to turn it. And, um, you know, someone like me and, and like an audio producer, um, you know, can come in and just, you know, can, can just kind of, you know, come in and, and, and even just, even to just merely say, this is where, where we are intending to turn the battleship. Um, is a super useful thing for an institution. Um, and audio really is like a real, um, it, yeah, it's just it, very few things, um, you know, are as intimate and very few things are as kind of urgent when you're listening to it. And um, it's, yeah, I don't know. There's, uh, it's it has such untapped potential still.